Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Dr. Seth O'Neill is back on the JOSPT Insights podcast again today to share his tips on diagnosing calf pain. We talk through the most common diagnoses, the things not to miss, the concerning things that can masquerade as calf pain, and what to do if you suspect there's something more than a calf muscle injury going on. Seth's academic base is the University of Leicester in the UK, where he's the Director of Research for the School of Healthcare. His clinical and research work focuses on tendinopathies and muscle injuries, particularly the calf and the Achilles tendon. Dr. Seth O'Neill, welcome back to JOSPT Insights. Thanks very much for having me back, Claire. It's a pleasure, Seth. And today we are diving into diagnosis and particularly differential diagnosis in the calf. I'm just going to dive straight in here and ask you to share what are the most common diagnoses for calf pain? Two most common diagnoses. The first most common we're going to get is a soleus muscle injury. Then we can have injuries of the gastroc being a bit less common, actually, than soleus, despite maybe what we all understood when we trained years ago. It's around 70 or 80% of all calf injuries appear to be soleus um, related. And then on top of that, we may have plantaris muscle involvement or plantaris injuries or some of the other smaller muscle groups, the deep flexors of the foot and things like tibialis posterior but they're far less common. So really we're talking soleus, gastroc, and then um, plantaris being a much smaller percentage of those calf injuries. Let's talk a bit about how one would go about diagnosing these injuries clinically. What are your top tips for differentiating, Seth? And and I guess where would you start when someone comes into you and says, I've got pain in my calf? How do you differentiate? Is it soleus? Is it gastroc? Am I dealing with plantaris or am I dealing with something else altogether? It's a really interesting one, and I don't think anyone's got a a true answer. I think all of the calf experts around the world would be happy to say that we can't differentiate out the exact site of the the lesion in terms of whether it involves a particular muscle or not without imaging. We can glean some information from our clinical assessment, but imaging will tell us whether the soleus, the plantaris, or, or the gastroc's injured and whether we've got a sort of muscle um, unit injury or whether it's a muscle tendon unit injury. So a little bit like we know with hamstrings, a lot of these injuries relate to intramuscular tendons or areas where muscles merge. So there's a region called the, the gastroc runoff, which is where it actually merges with the Achilles tendon. And that's quite a common site that's also quite problematic. And it's hard to diagnose that purely from a clinical presentation. So Clinically, we would always look at a variety of factors, as everyone would for any condition. So subjective history, how did it first start? And again, this gives us quite a few quandaries because you can have quite significant grade three injuries that actually occur and have a gradual insidious onset. So they're not a sudden onset of pain. Really tricky from a mechanism of onset and a presentation perspective of whether it came on suddenly or gradually It doesn't tell us about the severity or the site of injury. And then really to try and ascertain if it's a gastroc or a soleus injury, we'd do something as simple as looking at applying a muscle stretch and muscle contractions in a variety of straight knee and bent knee positions in order to try and stress 
those different muscles. So if, for example, we do a stretch dorsiflexion of the ankle whilst the knee is extended, we're going to put more tension through the gastrocnemius uh, and that will allow us to identify if it's possibly involved. And I think we've always just got to have a, a little bit of awareness. It might not be a pure injury to that in its own right, even if that test is positive and a bent knee dorsiflexion test, which biases a stretch to soleus is negative. And of course, stretching may be pain-free as well anyway at the time of testing. So we then need to go through and look at um, muscle contraction and functional positions that are, are more relevant to isolate the stresses to different sections of the muscles. So medial gastroc versus lateral gastroc, or within the soleus, we've got three intramuscular tendons, a medial and a, a sort of a middle one, and then a, a lateral tendon as well. So we can get one of those areas injured at a time. Seth, you mentioned imaging and that really imaging is what's needed to differentiate between these different muscle injuries. Are you suggesting that I really should focus on getting imaging when someone walks into the clinic to see me with calf pain? Is this is this something that I really should prioritise or is it something that, that I can place a lot of emphasis on my clinical skills and then look at imaging a bit later on down the track if, if someone's not progressing as I would expect? You're absolutely right, Claire, that it's something that we need to consider and be aware of. And of course, it depends who we're talking about at any one time period here. In elite sports, where we might want to get a idea about the, the prognostic sort of return to play timeframes, imaging does seem to have a role there. And there does seem to be a difference in return to play times based on the site of injury and the severity of injury from what we currently know about the calf. In a normal sort of amateur athlete, you or I, who goes out, does a lot of exercise and, and then develops a calf injury, imaging is far less of a requirement in those instances and is less likely to guide our intervention and less likely to match with our potential recovery times and return to activity and return to play. I want to pick up on this idea of return to play and prognosis for return to play and, and particularly what you mentioned there about imaging. Can you tell us a little bit about how one might use imaging to guide prognosis or at least what the imaging is telling us about prognosis? Is it making a difference of, you know, a week, two weeks? What, what do we know about the relationship between imaging and return to play times? There's lots of discussion about imaging and how it links to return to play. And, and part of the big debate that people are having both in the real world, the clinicians and the research groups, is really, are we just influencing our return to play based on what we know the imaging has confirmed? So is it actually we're slowing the recovery down because we're not advancing rehab because we're more concerned about a particular type of injury? So that's one important sort of internal debate we need to have with ourselves. In answer to the main part of your question, um, how does it really influence it? It's whether the tendons inside the muscles are involved or whether the, the tendon, the main aponeurosis for some of these muscles is involved and the extent of that injury. So, for example, if you've lost tension within the tendon itself or the, the fibres of muscle that attach to that section of tendon, then it seems to elongate the recovery period. And if there's a significant proportion of these intramuscular tendons that are damaged, then again, that seems to increase the, the level of recovery. So it sounds like, yes, imaging might 
give you a bit of extra information to build into that picture, that injury picture, but it's no substitute for your clinical skills. So you're still going to need to develop good clinical reasoning and know what what you're testing for and work through in a sequential, careful way, the differential diagnoses to then get to a diagnosis. Absolutely. That's definitely what we've got to do. And for the vast majority of runners, for example, uh, which is probably the biggest group we'll see with calf injuries or older football players who are sort of mid 40s, um, so soccer, we would want to just do a simple clinical workup. And that would involve your normal muscle length test, your muscle contraction tests, a variety of functional um, tests that progressively put more demand on the calf complex, involve endurance aspects looking at sort of the peak loads that the calf will cope with during activities that are relevant to that individual, looking at the accumulative loads that are relevant to that individual as well. So for example, 10k distance running, so for six mile run, what amount of calf force is generated there and what capacity do we need to rehab to and what's their tolerance alongside the rate of that force going through the, the muscle and the tendon unit. They're the three big components we would examine during our clinical assessment in order to guide our rehab. I love that summary, Seth. Thank you. I guess the other part of this is palpation. Some of us have learned lots of detailed surface anatomy. So what role, if any, does palpation play in making a diagnosis? So palpation probably plays quite an important role because it will give us an idea where in the muscle the there may be a lesion, the injury itself, and which side of the muscle we're potentially talking about. But it's very hard to reliably palpate through the gastroc to then assess the underlying soleus. And this is why we have some problems using palpation in and around the calf. But it would certainly give us an idea coupled with the site of pain and then the response to palpation with whether it was a medial sort of injury, whether it's a central tendon injury in the soleus, for example, or whether it's the lateral intramuscular tendon that was involved. So it will give us an idea on the site, but we've always got to be very cognizant that actually if there's any bruising that's occurred, any hematoma, and that might not be visible because it's trapped within the muscle and not externally visible because you haven't damaged the outer layers of the the muscle itself, it will track down through the calf often, the hematoma will. And that area, because it's an inflammatory reaction, will be painful to touch. And so sometimes we can look where the bruise is, palpate the bruise and go, yes, that's the sore spot, that's the site of injury. But actually, if you were to complete imaging, you'd you'd actually identify the injury is quite significantly higher and gravity has pulled the bruise down through the calf or or through the, um, the leg itself. Seth, what are the concerning things that might masquerade as calf pain? What things should I look out for? What are the things that I should really not miss? And and I guess, how do I make sure that I don't miss those more concerning things? There's quite a number of things that can present in and around the calf, and it's being aware of all those elements. And the most common one that we might see clinically will be a deep vein thrombosis, so a DBT. So the data for things like tennis leg, which is the old diagnosis we might have given to a, a sort of calf injury, um, suggests that around 10% of all people, particularly the older group, so when I say older, I'm talking about my own age group here. So those people that are active in their 40s and 50s, if they get an injury, they may 
present with what is a DBT, and that might be their initial injury, or as a consequence of their calf injury, they actually then develop a DBT. So they're the, the sort of the, the biggest concern, really, because the obviously possibility of moving and developing into a pulmonary embolism, or obviously, um, worst case, a CVA, a cerebrovascular accident or the like, and particularly where you're going to be doing manual treatments, maybe if people were looking at using sort of soft tissue massage and other techniques, if it was a DVT and you were to miss it, you're potentially going to disrupt the clot and end up sending it off around the body in the circulation somewhere. So DBT is the biggest thing, Claire, to start off with. And then we've got a few sort of less common conditions. So things like a peripheral neuropathy in and around the area, peripheral vascular disease in and around the area. So the person may present with intermittent bordication in the leg. So they normally get pain that comes on during activity and exercise, but settles immediately afterwards. I've certainly seen these cases where they've been diagnosed by other clinicians as a calf um, muscle injury and referred to, to us in physio, but actually it's a, a vascular disorder that's going on. So um, normally turns out to be popliteal artery entrapment, where the gastrocnemius has a malformation at its sort of insertion into the femur and ends up um, entrapping the popliteal artery in the popliteal fossa. And that then causes the claudication, the, the, the limp and the pain that the person gets because of lack of blood supply during um, locomotion, walking or running. And this happens sometimes in very young people, a, an acute or chronic compartment syndrome. Again, if there's been a big bleed and a hematoma within the calf internally, or there was a contusion or the player got stamped on or something like that, they can develop these internal increases in pressure that then can then cut off the circulation to the lower limb and actually be limb threatening as well. I, I used to work in A&E as my last um, NHS job in the UK, and we used to see a number of acute acute compartment syndrome, sorry, due to compression. And, and uh, unfortunately, sometimes people weren't always honest what had happened. Uh, so things like they've been in a fight and got stamped on or something, or a car had run over their limb or something. And it wasn't always overt from the presentation and what people gave you. So having a bit of suspicion for some of these rarer things, and you do circulatory checks for the lower limb, taking your pedal pulses, looking at capillary refill within the foot, and getting a good overall uh, look at the skin colorations and um, any venous engorgement and the like as well. There's some really great tips at the end there, Seth. Thanks for the refresher on how one would sort of what's the index of suspicion, but then also what are the simple things that we we really need to make sure that we build into standard clinical practice here, the pedal pulses, for example. So that's great. I guess the next step is then what happens next. Is it a direct referral to back to the emergency department or is it onto a vascular surgeon? What would be your next step if you suspected something like DVT? It depends on your local pathways is really the key. And some of that will depend on the clinician that's involved. So whether they're in a healthcare service and they can refer across the corridor to a colleague or whether you're a private practice. And again, which country that we're working in because the pathways will differ. But Ultimately, if we're suspicious of a DVT, we need to get urgent blood tests done. So things like a D-dimer test to look at clotting and a um, ultrasound to check the veins within that region, first line of investigation. So for here in the UK, that would be a referral via A&E, so the Accident and Emergency Department, so the ER if you're in the States, 
Um, we'd send them straight off and, and get them looked at that way with a very formal letter directly written from us at the time, or we'd ring through and ask to talk to somebody as they go. Problem that happens is where the letters aren't given enough information and actually then the person doesn't get dealt with appropriately. And I've certainly, again, had one patient in my private practice that stands out who actually had a clot in his femoral artery, but presented with calf pain. And he had a start of necrosis in his toes that the person who previously seen him had identified as being a, um, he dropped something on his toe or stubbed his toe. And that was why his foot or toe was slightly black. So again, just making sure you've got a good pathway for it. And that's about building a network locally for yourself. And likewise for other types of injuries or other types of presentations that you might expect to see in your clinical population. So whether it's safety netting for quarter equina syndrome, et cetera, the, the value of those pathways and knowing who am I going to refer to in any of these scenarios is, is critical and, and central to quality clinical practice and delivering high quality care. It absolutely is. It's, it's being aware of your potential serious masqueraders, as you've said, Claire, and knowing who and when and how you refer to those and access those services. And if in doubt, pick up the phone or seek a bit of senior support from colleagues that you work with. Quarter equinas are obviously a key one here as well. And, and it can sometimes present with lower limb pain, commonly be bilateral, obviously, but occasionally will be unilaterally. And some of the other masqueraders we'll get for the calf could be um, sciatica presenting with calf pain or some of the other um, lower limb joints like the hip might refer down into and around the calf area. As we're building our clinical picture and working through the clinical reasoning process, how do you suggest we think about pain? Is this something, is it something like back pain where often the pain may not equal tissue damage or at least the site of the pain isn't necessarily going to give us a strong clue about the diagnosis? Site of pain is probably relatively more focal than we get for low back pain. It will tend to give us a reasonable indication of where the injury is in terms of the side of the calf that it might be on. Certainly, that's our experience when we look at imaging and it's less common to get widespread hypersensitivity in and around that region with um, complex presentations, unless you've got something like complex regional pain syndrome that's developed. In the calf, they're rare they're, and they would normally link with surgery to a nerve or something. The level of pain will be unlikely to be in keeping with the level of injury if we base that on a pathoanatomical model and graded it using imaging. So again, not that useful to look at this the level of pain and the site of pain to guide us with that decision. Does pain equal tissue damage in the calf? Any pain in the body could, could be relatively unrelated to the level of tissue damage as identified by scans. And what we've always got to appreciate is a scan gives you a structural um, diagnosis. It doesn't really tell us about any inflammatory or chemical reactions that may actually be making tissue sensitive. And then we've also got sort of psychological overlay on that. So what that area means to the person themselves and how that pain may influence their psyche and, and their sort of sense of self is often a problem, particularly with athletic individuals who describe themselves. If you ask them, tell me about you, oh, I'm a marathoner or I'm a, a sort of fell runner or I'm, I'm a footballer. It's all of those things where that can have a big driver on it. So there is a lot going on within the person. And we've always got to appreciate that during our clinical management. 
whilst we've talked a lot about sort of imaging and tissue, it's really managing the person is critical here and understanding all of those different aspects that will influence the recovery and the likelihood of the person to get better, adhere to the advice that they may be given to things like self-efficacy, catastrophization, fear avoidant behavior, understanding in that context that actually loading is useful and having some degree of pain, much like we would rehab with back pain during rehab is actually really sort of normal and perfectly acceptable because if we wait for the calf injury to, to miraculously heal and then try to load, we're going to struggle because they're going to have lost tissue mass, got a lot stiffer, have a, an abnormal scar formation that then will have some small adhesions that start to break during rehab. And this is typically what we see in the elite groups where we've got imaging and can actually look at the scar during that recovery period. We'll often see that they have a, a flare during a particular exercise session. The scan, if it's redone at that point, will show a minor change that really is in keeping with some of the adhesions breaking. And it's often because the formation of the scar was quite poor at the start because they might have been immobilized for too long. And again, some athletes, but also athletic individuals will not be accepting of any discomfort during exercise. They would assume they should be absolutely pain-free, but most of us as we age, unfortunately, accept some discomfort during exercise and it, it is part of it sometimes that you may have a little bit of a sensation in your calf before you go out for your run and then surprisingly you do your run and it's absolutely fine uh, and there's no real consequences afterwards so we've all had that experience ourselves in life and it's helping our patients to understand that that can be the case with whatever pain we're talking about Claire to actually just test the water see how they feel and look at the aftermath so it's always this level of flare up that they might experience as a consequence of doing their activity. So much like tendon rehab, we use something along the lines of a pain monitoring model. So Karen Silbernagel's approach of some discomfort is absolutely fine. What's an acceptable amount of discomfort will vary on the level of exercise you've done and how it impacts you afterwards. And it's just making sure that any flare-ups are acceptable and tolerable to the individual you've got in front of you. The level of pain, if you graded it on a VAS score, and the, the level of disability they might suffer after exercise will vary from person to person. And the level that is acceptable will also be very, very variable. So it's helping our patients to understand that some discomfort is good. That's absolutely normal during rehab. We don't want a long-term flare-up after they've done their run, their exercise, whatever that happened to be. So they're not sore for the next two days. Seth, I think that's a really good place for us to finish today. Thanks for a terrific walk through a calf diagnosis mini masterclass. It's been great having you join me on JOSPT Insights today. Thank you very much for having me again, Claire. It's been an honour to be with you. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.